Good morning, baseball fans, and welcome to episode 48 of the Morning Round Trip podcast here on August 27th. My name is Drew Frank, joined by my co-host Liam Crothers. Hello and good morning. And today our top story comes from beyond the world of baseball as the sports world as a whole and, of course, the world beyond it continues to react to the shooting of Jacob Blake. And we saw the first real response from athletes coming out yesterday as beyond speaking out and providing quotes. We saw games boycotted across the NBA and, well, the official ruling would be that they were suspended or canceling games. They were boycotted as a player's way of sending a message, and we saw that continue across the MLB to some extent. The first game we saw canceled was Milwaukee-Cincinnati, following suit from their cross-city sports team, the Bucks. The Brewers also made the decision not to play after what had happened in the state of Wisconsin. The decisions, of course, not tied to baseball, not tied to sports, just their decision if they have a platform and they can get millions of people to see and take notes and redirect the focus away from baseball, away from a distraction to focus on the real issues. That's what they were doing. So, of course, nothing but respect to the athletes there that made that decision. Across the West Coast, we saw two more teams following suits as Seattle-San Diego canceled their game. And later on, it was a little back and forth of whether this game would happen, conflicting reports. But the Dodgers and San Fran ultimately canceled their game as well as the players once again decided to boycott play no baseball last night and look to make it up whenever but looking down the line it it wasn't the baseball necessarily that they were entirely worried about here professional sports is meant to be a distraction and in these uncertain times with fear circulating which seems like every day in news media outlets and a whole lot of uncertainty from every part of the country in both the US and Canada I do believe that this is the right decision I stand in solidarity with every player who decided not to play uh, while their team went out on the field. And with every team that made the decision to decide not to play yesterday, I agree with it. And with the Dodgers situation, Kershaw had said it started with Betts, who decided he was going to be sitting out, going to be boycotting. And from there, the team just decided to go with him. We saw three other teams where we had a player make that decision, but the team played anyway without them. Jason Hayward in Chicago, Kemp in Colorado, and both Fowler and Flaherty in St. Louis. It is worth noting, it was clarified through the media, that Hayward actually encouraged his Cubs teammates to play without him and to just get the game in. So not necessarily these cases are the teams turning their backs on the players, but still showing that these players were getting their message across and joining the boycotting effort, even if it wasn't a team-wide decision. Now, this has all sorts of implications for the world beyond sports, but looking at baseball, this, and specifically basketball as a model, the bubble in basketball, there's a real chance that this could be the end of the bubble, which is interesting because as teams vote whether they want to continue playoffs during these times, 
the MLB themselves is looking at putting together a bubble, and who knows necessarily how the other two sports will end, and who knows if we'll get to seeing one in baseball. But Ken Rosenthal has continued to report that baseball is looking at the AL in Southern California and the NL in Texas with an eventual World Series potentially at the Rangers' new park. But again, we'll have to wait and see. This, of course, is a long way away, and you're going to have to need to see how the NBA situation plays out, how the NHL situation plays out, and how positive cases either come up or don't come up around the rest of the MLB before you make your decision. But just keep in mind that is still progressing. And as we move forward to the next few weeks, we will continue to update you on the bubble front. And speaking of bubbles and curfews and avoiding curfews, Mike Clevenger has returned from his restricted list stints and his option stints, and we saw a bunch of quotes where he kind of pleaded innocence, then realized what he did was wrong, and he came out, spoke to the media, and he said that his teammates didn't kick him to the curb, but they let him know how they felt. He said, I really understood how much I disappointed them and the staff and everybody around. The hardest pill to swallow was that I made a really selfish choice. So at least it seems after initially kind of shrugging it off, defending Plezak, he is kind of understanding the consequences of, of what he's done. But him being called back up, which we talked about, kind of opens the door for Plezak to join the team sometime soon. So that will probably be in the weeks to come. We'll get to him a little later as we talk about what he did on the field. But some injury notes. Sean Doolittle is back, and interestingly, when they activated him, they optioned Carter Keeboom. They bring in a reliever, they send down their everyday third baseman, and this kind of surprised a lot of people. Keeboom had an OPS plus of 56 through his first 64 plate appearances. Not great, but he was their starting third baseman. So this is a bit of a surprise. We'll see if there's any quotes from David Martinez or the front office about that decision. And some unfortunate news, the Rays continue to be pelted by injuries to their rotation and their bullpen. And yesterday we find out Jalen Beeks is done for the season with an elbow injury. We also got an update. Merrill Kelly's diagnosis is a little clearer. It looks like he might be out for the rest of 2020. And if he's back, it'll only be for the last couple weeks of September. So a team that's been struggling looks like they'll be without him for their playoff push. Mentioned that San Diego and Seattle was boycotted last night. That was one of our three predicted games. The other two continued on, and it wasn't without some sort of display at City Field as Dom Smith knelt during a moment of silence early on and spoke with teary eyes after the game about the importance of the entire situation. Of course, much bigger issues at play here than baseball, but they played on and we saw quite a game highlighted by just peak Jake DeGrom, who continues to get better and better, and it's almost unfair at this point. You talk about peak Jake DeGrom, how about this? You tie the MLB season high set by Shane Bieber with 14 strikeouts, which just so happens to match your career high, and you walk out of this game with a no decision. It's peak Jake DeGrom, it's peak Mets. In this game, I thought Jake DeGrom looked probably as good as he's looked all season, and I feel like we say that every time he goes out there. He had eight balls in play all night long, and four of those were ground outs. And I mean, he touched 100 miles an hour eight times. This guy is throwing cheddar every single time he's up there. It's just he continues 
to to redefine the legend that is Jake DeGrom and the Mets team behind him continues to define what it means to be Jake DeGrom with this Mets team because he goes out there, he pitches his heart out every single night and he doesn't come away with wins. And on the other side, Eliezer Hernandez, I thought he pitched a pretty decent game, but he ran himself into trouble with a couple of big home runs into right field. Went four innings in this one, gives up seven hits, allows four runs, but only three of them earned. And he strikes out seven, but the two home runs, like I said, one from Conforto and one from Nimmo. And things sort of fell off the rails for the Mets in the top of the eighth. They go to Justin Wilson out of the pen and then Edwin Diaz out of the pen as well. But Diaz is taken out by the trainer, so we'll wait to see if there's any news on that front after a guy who had struggled early and had started to put things back together. We're going to see if Edwin Diaz is going to be on the IL for any stint of time. Uh, But the Mets came back in the bottom of the eighth, and Wilson Ramos with what would end up being a game-winning RBI single into right that scores Billy Hamilton. Again, if you're the Mets, it's more of the same old story, but at least you walk out of this one with a win. Just about 39% of the win attributed to DeGrom's performance on the mounds. Crazy, crazy stuff from him. But we saw two aces going at it in Cleveland that we mentioned. Jose Barrios visited Mike Clevenger, and this would decide the series as they split the first two games. And two teams very close at the top of the Central. Both teams were probably looking at the end of the town scoreboard, saw the White Sox winning once again, and knew the pressure was on here. And Cleveland comes away with this one 6-3, but it was the Twins who got out early. And, I mean, really early. Third pitch of the game, Max Kepler hit a leadoff home run in the first half of the game, which is the third time he's done that this season, starting the game with a long ball. Second time he's done it specifically against Clevenger this season. Twelfth career home run in Cleveland. He's just been absolutely dominating this team. We saw Clevenger give another run the top of the second, but then he settled right down, eventually finishing with six innings pitched, just those two earned runs, six strikeouts to one walk. Look pretty good. Barrios also hung right in there. He went five and two-thirds, giving up three runs. That all came on a Jose Ramirez three-run shot that just got out and just stayed fair. So when things were all said and done, the two starters left the game and the score was 3-2 for Cleveland's, but this game was quickly neutralized as Oliver Perez gave up a run to make it 3-3. And then back into the pen, we'd seen some struggling from the Indians and Krinchik didn't seem like he'd be available, but it was actually the Twins pen that blew this one. Sergio Romo comes in, he gets one out, gives up two hits, but he allows three earned runs. And you mentioned the the difference between the starting pitchers and this one was razor thin. I thought both guys looked really, really strong, and that's evident in the way that this game ended up. We saw five runs just before the third inning was closed out, and then things were pretty smooth sailing for both guys. Burrios and Clevenger both were able to settle things in. And then you mentioned Minnesota puts up one against Perez. And then Cleveland puts up three, and that spot starts against Romo. For me, the biggest takeaway in this game wasn't so much what happened on the field. It's what happened in the dugout. Mike Clevenger, obviously, if you're pitching well, your teammates are going to be happy with you. But it seemed to me like he was sort of welcomed back into that clubhouse. It seemed like he was part of this team again, which is good news for him and good news for the Indians if they're trying to find the same page for their players and try to get everybody working as a well-oiled machine. 
Uh, and Clevenger looked to be laughing in the dugout, looked to be smiling with his teammates, dishing out high fives, even though you're not supposed to do that. He looked to be pretty comfortable back uh, on the field in this one as well, which is always good news for the Cleveland Indians. This is a tight AL Central, man. Every single one of these games matters, and obviously in a 60-game season, they matter just a little bit more. And this was a really strong performance by Cleveland in this one to hang tough with it until the late innings and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. The only other note coming out of this game that we have to mention, Max Kepler, after hitting that home run later in the game, would foul a ball off his foot. Right now he's got a bruised foot, but the x-rays came back negative, so hopefully he won't have to miss much time. But yeah, like you said, that's central, extremely competitive. The White Sox go on and they win again. Only team in baseball to have won nine of their last ten games, and it's the same story. It's the offense. Abreu goes yard, and Carnacion hits one way out of there. And Abreu now got 12 on the year, tying Tatis Jr. for the MLB lead. And on the other side of things, unfortunately, there's got to be a victim to the massacre. Trevor Williams started for the Pirates, a guy that we've heard trade rumors about. Didn't raise his stock here, got hit hard by the White Sox, and we'll see if that's a factor. But if you wanted to see some pitching, we talked about this matchup earlier a couple days ago before it was eventually rained out. Ian Anderson... And Garrett Cole was quite a game because Anderson had a no-hitter into the sixth inning when the only hit he allowed was a solo shot to Luke Voigt in his major league debut against an extremely talented New York Yankees lineup, and he outpitched Garrett Cole. Outpitching Garrett Cole in 2020 is no small feat. You look at Cole's line, he goes five innings. He allows five hits and five earned runs. Obviously, he strikes out nine. That's the Garrett Cole way, but he gave up three home runs. And on the other side, Anderson, six innings of one hit, one run ball. He strikes out six and only walks two. And one of those Garrett Cole home runs was a massive shot from Ronald Acuna Jr. to start out the game. You can check that out on our Twitter, at Trip Morning. That thing was a blast gone off the bat. It's good to see Ronald Acuna Jr. back playing with the Braves, and obviously he hasn't missed a step. And there's more of the same in the second half of the doubleheader. Max Freed continued right where Ian Anderson left off. Freed goes six scoreless innings, only allowing three hits while he struck out seven. Atlanta takes both halves of the doubleheader, and now that's five losses in a row for the Yankees. But you can throw on another loss because they didn't lose one in the standings, but they lose Aaron Judge again. He was removed in the sixth inning with suspected calf issues, and he's been deemed a candidate to return to the IL per John Heyman. I don't even know what you say with Judge at this point. It's just getting to the point for Yankees fans where, I mean, the hits keep coming, but not in a good way, right? It's just the the same old story of we have a great team. We're going to make a run at the World Series this year. We're going to be awesome. And then everybody gets hurt. I mean, what is there to say about it? Yeah, you got to wonder how much you can look at luck versus if there's been a lack of caution or problem with their training staff. They're, They're known for having one of the better ones in the world, but... Either way, hope for the best for Aaron Judge, and hopefully he doesn't have to head back to the IL. We saw his former manager, Joe Girardi, get his 1,000th win last night in Philadelphia. 16th fastest manager to reach that milestone. Seems like a great grab there for the Phillies to acquire Girardi, and they're 
knocking on the door as they close in on the Marlins for that second playoff spot in the NL East. News from Buffalo. We saw Teoscar Hernandez hit another home run. That's his 11th on the season. Guy we haven't mentioned all that much in the podcast, but he's now tied for second in the AL. Just one home run behind the MLB leaders Abreu and Tatis Jr., and his teammate, Rowdy Telez, continues to hit at Buffalo. He went 3-for-4 with two home runs last night, tallying four RBIs. But how about this? So far in 2020, he's got 51 plate appearances outside of Buffalo, 27 plate appearances in Buffalo. So a decent-ish sample size. 420 OPS on the road and just under 1,600 OPS at home. Crazy, crazy numbers for him. And finally, our last note on the offensive side, Charlie Blackman, we saw hit a grand slam last night, which is good, but he goes one for four, which for 400 watch isn't so good. His average falls to 390 on the season as he goes beneath the 400 mark for the first time in some time. So we still have hope, but it's definitely not looking as promising as it once did. But his Rockies will continue to face the Diamondbacks and look to sweep a four-game series tonight. They lost 10 of their last 11 coming into this series, but now they have a chance to bounce back and sweep the Diamondbacks. It's going to be Kyle Freeland versus Zach Gallen, And Gallen is not only trying to end the eight-game losing streak the Diamondbacks have going, he's looking to set an MLB record. We talked about it before in his last start. He's thrown 21 games to start his career with three earned runs or less. That ties an MLB record. If he goes, if he does it again tonight, he would single-handedly own the record. So I'm going to ask you two questions. First off, I'm taking Arizona here. I'm going to ask you who you're picking and if you think Gallon can pull it off. I think Gallon's going to be able to take this one, but this game is going to be very, very interesting. Zach Gallon is looking to accrue some very interesting accolades in terms of earned runs allowed, but Kyle Freeland is a guy who is a ground ball machine. Both of these guys are very, very strong, but I think the bats have to come alive in this one. I think you have to stop the skid, and if you can do that behind a strong performance from Gallon, I think you're going to get the win in this one. We also see another interesting pitching matchup featuring a ground baller as Randy Dobnak takes on Matt Boyd. We've talked a lot about Dobnak so far this season, but we're looking at this game for Matt Boyd. It could be his last start in a Tigers uniform. So again, I'll throw you two questions. One, is this his last start? And two, who you got in this one? I'm taking the Twins in this one. I mean, I've mentioned Randy Dobnak on the show before. I think he's going to give up some hard contact on the ground, but I think he's going to have infielders around, which is always positive. But for Matthew Boyd, I don't think this is his last start in a Tigers uniform. I think he's pitched too poorly this season, and I don't think that a a solid start in this one is going to wipe away the 8.48 ERA that he's taking into this game. And finally, we saw Baltimore sweep Tampa at home back in their first series. And now Baltimore is one game away from being swept at the Trop. And they try to salvage at least one game as John Means takes them out against Ryan Yarbrough. Baltimore has dropped eight of their last ten and are 0-4 in John Means' start so far this season. But this is his first start outside of Camden Yards. He hasn't faced Tampa Bay all year. And he's pitched in the Trop twice with only two earned through nine combined innings and just one walk to nine strikeouts. So change the scenery. It could help John Means. Who you got in this one? For me, John Means is a guy who's very, very interesting. Obviously, he had a strong year last year as an all-star, but this year he's got a 10.13 ERA. 
But for me, it's probably going to see a pitch limit in this one. So I think if the Rays bats can get a little bit deeper and force them out of the game early, they're going to have the opportunity to beat up on this Orioles bullpen with how strong those bats can be. And if Yarborough can put things together, then the Rays are going to be able to take this one over the O's. This this team just manages to stay in games and surprise people, and I think they have another surprise today. Now that's it for our time today. You can find the show on Twitter at Trip Morning. You can find us on Instagram at Morning Round Trip. For Drew Frank and Liam Crothers, thanks for listening, and have a great day.